0: Okay. Well, good morning, everybody. How's everyone's week been? Good? Good, good. good. It's a beautiful day outside. My name is Josh. I'm the minister here at ACC. And we're going to jump into our series, again, called Kingdom. We're going to be looking at the book of Matthew. So today we're going to be in Matthew chapters 21 and 22 and a little bit into 23. You'll notice as we're getting towards the end here, I'm not able to get through all of the chapters we have. Um, So I encourage you to spend time in your Bible reading those at home. We're going to study them also on Tuesday nights. But we're getting into the part of the book of Matthew where everything is coming to a head. Jesus has taught about his kingdom values, the necessity of faith in a relationship with God. And and finally, we're getting to the point where Jesus is moving His ministry into the big city of Jerusalem, the hub of all things. And He's going in to Jerusalem for the last time on earth. And so if you have your Bibles, I would love it if you would open up with me to Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to start in verse 1. Matthew 22, 1 says, Now when they approached Jerusalem... And came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, telling them, Go to the village ahead of you. Right away you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you are to say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Tell the people of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, unassumed and seated on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey." So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those following kept shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in highest! In the highest! As he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was thrown into an uproar, saying, Who is this? and the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee." So Jesus and his followers have made their way into Jerusalem. They're coming in on the east side of the city and the crowds have prepared this grand entrance for him. This was a king's entrance. This was a proclamation, Hosanna, the king has arrived, the Messiah has arrived. The one who for years the Old Testament prophesied about. The one who was finally going to come and free us from Roman rule and we're going to be a nation of Israel again. That's what was on everybody's mind. We get to verse 12 and everyone's expecting this is finally the one, this is the king who's going to come over and overthrow the Romans and establish a new nation of Israel. Verse 12, then Jesus entered Pontius Pilate and overthrew the Romans. No, that's not what it says. Oh, there it is. Verse 12 says, Then Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all those who were selling and buying in the temple courts and turned over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are turning it into a den of robbers. The blind and lame came to him in the temple courts and he healed them. But when the chief priests and experts of the law saw the wonderful things he did and heard the children crying out in the temple courts, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they're saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of children and nursing infants you have prepared praise for yourself? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany to spend the night there. Okay, so here... Let's break down a recap of Jesus' first day in Jerusalem. He shows up on a donkey. He gets this grand, noisy introduction that causes a commotion. Everyone hails him as king. Everyone's expecting him to go into Pontius Pilate's house and overthrow Rome. And the first place he goes, he goes into the temple, flips some tables over, heals some people, and then leaves. What is going on here? They thought he was going to be overthrowing Rome, but instead he goes into the temple, the house of God. It's like those movies where at the the very end of the movie you find out that you thought this person was the good guy, but at the very end of the movie the twist is he's actually the bad guy. See, for us, reading Matthew, we've gotten it. We know what the Pharisees have been doing all along, but imagine those people there. They didn't think that the temple people and the Pharisees were the bad guys. So for them, it was a big shock. And he threw over the tables of the money changers. So, so here's, what, here's what's going on here with these money changers. If you lived more than a couple of days' walk from Jerusalem, and you're coming in for the Passover, you're required to bring a sacrifice. And if you live farther than a couple of days' walk, you're not going to bring your lamb with you Because that's just a hassle and nobody wants to walk 300 miles with a lamb. And so you're like, okay, I'll just buy one when I get there and then I'll do my sacrifice. It was very common practice. But here's the catch. If you're buying something in the temple, you've got to exchange whatever money you were using to have the right currency to be used in the temple. Just like if you went to Mexico, you've got to take your American dollars and turn them in and get pesos back. If you go to Europe, you've gotta take your American dollars, you've got to exchange them for euros. Anybody ever had to do that before? Exchange rates, we ever traveled outside the country? Yeah. So you're probably well aware that when you go different places, there's different exchange rates. If I take my American dollars and go to Mexico, well, I can exchange it and get a really good deal on pesos and get a can of Coke that normally would have cost maybe $2 here, I can get for about 60 cents. It's a good exchange rate. If I go to Europe, if I go to France, that same can of Coke is going to cost about $2.25 because of the exchange rate. In Jerusalem, during the time of the Passover, they had this nasty habit of increasing the exchange rate right about the time all of the pilgrims were coming into Jerusalem for the Passover. Isn't that kind of because they knew people were coming in to buy sacrifices, so they would jack up the rates. And that was condoned by the religious leadership. They were all okay with that. Not only that, but it was the ones selling doves. Doves was what you bought. If you were not rich enough to be able to afford a lamb, you were allowed to sacrifice a dove. So they were raising the rates on the poorest people. So obviously Jesus is mad. He goes in, kicks the tables over, runs them out of town, and then goes back to Bethany to stay the night. The word Bethany literally means poor house in Aramaic. It's house of the poor. That was the place that you lived if you were homeless, or had leprosy, or were sick, or were extremely poor. Bethany was kind of like the slums of Jerusalem. They had hospitals there for people who were too sick to work. That was the place where all of the undesirables went so that Jerusalem could be nice and pretty and fancy for all the visitors. Think if you ever go to a big city. There's the downtown spot where they want all the tourists to go where there's big tall buildings and fancy hotels and everything nice. everything's nice and the streets are clean. But you go a block in this direction and you get into the slums where all the prostitutes and the homeless people and the drug dealers and everyone hangs out. Same city, but they had poured all of their resources into Jerusalem. Bethany's kind of just like the slums. And so that's where Jesus goes to spend the night. And I don't think it's a mistake that he goes there, instead of Jerusalem because those are the people that he wants to spend his time with. But that that disparity between Jerusalem where they're raising the rates and subjecting the poorest of the people to these high exchange rates and Bethany, that disparity helps us make sense of the next passage in chapter 21 starting in verse 18. He comes back. It says, Now early in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. After noticing a fig tree by the road, he went to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. He said to it, Never again will there be fruit from you. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed, saying, How did the fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus answered them, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what was done to the fig tree, But even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, if you believe, you will receive. So we need to understand Jesus wasn't mad at the actual tree. The tree didn't do anything wrong. The tree is just a tree. A tree doesn't have feelings. A tree can't think. A tree can't decide when it's going to bear fruit. But think about what's going on in Jerusalem at the time what Jesus is witnessing in the capital city. He's witnessing the Jewish religious leadership not producing fruit. And so when he curses this fig tree, it's this big living metaphor of the religious leaders in Israel. We have to be careful when we read passages like this because Jesus is not talking to us in the year 2023. He's talking to the disciples in the year around 33. So let's put ourselves back in that culture, back in that time and see what's going on here. Jesus is upset with the leadership. He curses this tree that represents the religious leaders and all the harm that they're doing. And then he says, I tell you, if you have faith, you can say to this mountain, be raised up and thrown in the sea. Pointing in on that word this. It's this mountain, meaning he's pointing at a mountain. He's looking. He says, this mountain, not just any mountain, but this one. Well, if you're walking into Jerusalem, you're going to see one mountain. As you're coming into Jerusalem, there's only one mountain that you can see, and that's Mount Zion, the mountain where the temple is sitting. So this is not a passage that tells us we can just, if we pray really hard, we can make anything happen, I can make the mountains. That's not what this is about. He's telling his disciples, if you have faith, you will be able to replace this religious leadership, this corrupt tree that is not bearing fruit, and throw it into the sea and replace it. Replace it with what? Replace it with faith. Jesus is getting ready to make the point that the religious leadership is about to be overthrown and a new kingdom is coming in. So he goes into the city. The chief priests and the elders, they question his authority. They try to stump in on his words, and Jesus is not having any of it. They ask him, where's your authority come from? And Jesus is like, I don't know, where did John's authority come from? And they're stumped. They couldn't answer the question. But he doesn't stop there with just shutting down their argument. He goes into offense mode and tells them these three parables. I if you jump ahead to uh, verse 28. Jesus says, What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. The boy answered, I will not. But later he had a change of heart and went. The father went to the other son and said the same thing. The boy answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. This is him talking to the religious leaders. He says, which of the two did his father's will? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Tax collectors and prostitutes will go ahead of you into the kingdom of God. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe Although you saw this, you did not later change your minds and believe him. See, the religious leaders were really good about talking about being righteous. They were really good about talking about being faithful. But their actions showed otherwise. On the flip side, Jesus' followers and John's followers, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, the low-down, scum-of-the-earth types of people, they made no claims about how good they were because they knew they weren't. But at the same time, they were the ones who turned around and repented and followed John and then later followed Jesus. So who's really doing the will of the Father there? The one that looks righteous on the outside or the one who knows I'm a sinner but I'm going to repent and follow Jesus? Now here's where it gets a little bit tricky for us. Because last week we talked a great deal about how our actions are never going to make us right with God. The things we do are never going to get us to that point. But then here... It seems as though Jesus is saying it's our actions that count. It's the fruit we produce that counts. And sometimes when you read the Bible, you can get a little bit of whiplash. Because you're like, well, is it our faith or is it our actions? Which is it? And I think it's clear from this passage that faith is more than just a mental exercise. Faith is not just saying words and thinking things. True faith produces fruit. Faith faith looks like something. Faith actually has something that you can look at and say, yeah, that looks like faith. Think about this. When you go to the bank, you go to any bank in America, somewhere in that building, you're going to see a sign, a little plaque that says FDIC. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's probably, it's right there on the teller's counter. There's going to be a little plaque and it's going to say all deposits insured up to $250,000 on the, how does it, yeah, it's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government, on every bank in America. What that basically means is, you put your money into the bank, you give the bank your money, and if the bank loses your money, the U.S. government promises to reimburse you that money, up to $250,000, and it's backed by your faith in the U.S. government. They had to do that because during the Great Depression, when the big stock market crash came, people put their money in the banks, and then the stock market tanked. People went to the banks and they're like, hey, I gave you $1,000, I want my $1,000 back, and the bank was like, we don't have it. We lost it. And so that's why they have that. So implicitly, when you put your money in the bank, you are displaying a version of faith toward that bank, and toward the United States Treasury. It's not a political sermon. I'm just saying that's what you're saying. Because you put your money in the bank, you're saying, I trust that my money's going to be there when I need it. If you keep all of your money in a shoebox under your bed, it's a good indication that maybe you don't have so much trust in the banks and the Treasury. If you take all of your money, and you buy gold and silver with it, and you keep it in a safe in your basement, it's a pretty good indication that you don't really trust the bank, you don't really have faith in the treasury. If you have faith in God, if you have faith in God's kingdom, you're going to put all your stock in the kingdom. Your faith is going to look like something, your faith is going to produce Actions that bear fruit. It manifests itself in the way you live your life. Jesus is not done here. He tells another, another parable in verse 33. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, dug a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and then went away on a journey. This is what's really cool about this parable. This is, excuse me, this is not a parable that Jesus is making up on the spot here. He's actually repurposing an old parable from the book of Isaiah. This is Isaiah 5. I want to read the, the parable that Jesus is repurposing here and give you an idea of what he's going on here. I put my bookmark in the wrong spot, guys, sorry. Sorry. In a new Bible, they changed the locations of everything. This is Isaiah 5, excuse me, verses 1 through 7. This is the parable that Jesus is quoting here. Isaiah says, I I will sing to my love a song about my lover and his vineyard. My love had a vineyard on a fertile hill He built a hedge around it and removed stones and planted a vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and constructed a wine press and waited for it to produce edible grapes. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? But it produced sour ones instead. So now residents of Jerusalem, people of Judah, you decide between me and my vineyard. What more can I do for my vineyard beyond what I've already done? When I waited waited for it to produce edible grapes... Why did it produce sour ones instead? Now I will inform you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and turn it into pasture. I will break its wall and allow animals to graze there. I will make it a wasteland. No one will prune its vines or hoe its grounds, and thorns and briars will grow there. I will order the clouds not to drop any rain on it. And in case it wasn't clear who Isaiah is talking about, Verse 7 says, indeed, Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are the cultivated place in which he took delight. He waited for justice, but look what he got. Disobedience. He waited for fairness, but look what he got. Cries for help. So back in, in Matthew, before Jesus even gets started... By the time he says the words, let me tell you a parable about a vineyard with a watchtower and a wine press, the religious leaders are going, uh-oh, this one. We know this one already. This one doesn't turn out good for us. Verse 34. He says... Oops, sorry, guys. No, this is why I messed up here. All right. Verse 34 Jesus says when the harvest time came near he sent his slaves to the tenant to collect his portion of the crop but the tenant seized his slaves beat one killed another and stoned another again he sent other slaves more than the first and they treated them the same way finally he sent his son to them saying they will respect my son but when the tenant saw the son they said to themselves this is the heir come let us kill him and get his inheritance So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the landowner of the vineyard comes, this is the question he's asking the religious leaders. (coughs) When the landowner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will utterly destroy those evil men. Then he will lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his portion at the harvest. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected? This is from the Lord, it had become the cornerstone. This is from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. For this reason I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and the one on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized he was speaking about them. You think? They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds because the crowds regarded him as a prophet. So the people who were supposed to be stewards of God's kingdom, the ones who were supposed to take care of the vineyard, the religious leaders, Jesus is pretty clear, you're out. The fig tree, the mountain, the vineyard, the two sons, whatever metaphor Jesus uses that you want to go with, God appointed the religious leaders to be keepers of the kingdom, and God was fed up with what they were doing, and He was kicking them out. You remember back, seems like we do it every year now, when, when, when the government runs out of money and they do the government shutdown thing? Did you know that in 1975, Australia had one of those government shutdown crises? But Australia, funny enough, is still technically under the auspices of the crown of the United Kingdom. They kind of run as their independent nation, but the queen, or now it's the king, has full veto power in Australia. So back in 75, they had one of those government shutdowns, so they ran out of money and the government shut down. You know what Queen Elizabeth did? She declared by her authority of the crown that every single member of the Australian Parliament, the Prime Minister, the Vice Prime Minister, and all of their whatever they call themselves in Australia, (laughs) you're out of here. Kicked every single one of them out and held an emergency re-election. Isn't that insane? She just upended an entire establishment and just booted them to the door. That's what Jesus is saying here to the religious leaders. He says, if you're not going to steward my kingdom properly, you're out of here, and I'm going to go find someone who will. I'm going to find someone who's going to come to my banquet. And that's what our next parable is about. In chapter 22, verse 1, it says, Jesus spoke to them again in parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to summon those who had been invited to the banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, look, the feast I have prepared for you is ready. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they were indifferent and went away. One to his farm, another to his business. The rest Every time I read this, it just blows my mind. The rest seized his slaves, insolently mistreated them, and killed them. That came out of nowhere. The king was furious. He sent his soldiers, and they put those murderers to death and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but the ones who have been invited are not worthy. So go into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all they found, both good and bad, And the wedding hall was filled with guests. This is a really, really cool parable. So in those days, if you were going to plan a wedding, especially if you were a big like a king or a noble, um, it was a lot like today where you send out the save the date or the RSVP card. You send that thing out like a year in advance king's like, my son's getting married, we're going to go out to all the nobles, all of the the fancy people, and we're going to tell them, next March, we're having a wedding, be there. But remember, we're in the time before there's no electricity, there's no refrigeration. They weren't as precise with their times as we are today. Because we'll send out a a save the date that's like, March 23rd at 10 a.m., at this location, well they didn't have that kind of precision. They would send out an invite that said, sometime in March next year we're having a wedding, be there, and you are expected to clear your calendar for the month of March. And then as it got closer, once they got the preparations ready and they could give a more precise date, they'd send people out and say, okay, food's ready, everything's good to go, come on to the wedding, and everyone would show up and they'd have a grand time. And so all of these people in the parable had already received the save the date. They had already agreed. They had already said, yes, I'll be there. My schedule is cleared. So when you go out and you get summoned to the wedding, you're not just saying, oh, man, something came up. I'm really busy. Like, you're telling the king, I didn't even bother to clear my calendar for you. I didn't care. I told you I was going to go, but I'm not coming. And so at this point, by the first invitation, when you refuse, that's already extremely rude. It's not something you do to the king. But the king sends his servants out again, and he's like, no, seriously, we got all the the burgers are on the grill, like everything's ready to go, there's a big cake, like all this food's gonna go bad, come on to the wedding. They were lucky to have even gotten that second invitation saying, no, we we slaughtered a cow for you guys, like, come on, to the wedding. That was, they were lucky to even gotten that. But for whatever reason, they decided that the best course of action would be not only to refuse a second time, but to beat and kill the messengers? Well, again, Jesus is telling this to the religious leaders who had a really nasty habit of taking God's prophets, and whenever God's prophets said something they didn't like, and killing them. So, once again, Jesus is saying, Hey, you religious leaders, you're out. You're not producing fruit. You keep killing God's prophets. You're not stewarding the kingdom. You're out. You're going to be overthrown, religious leaders. Now, this might seem like a silly question, but when, when we say the religious leaders are overthrown, they're kicked out, who, that's kind of a broad, vague term, is it? Like, who exactly are we talking about when we say the religious leaders are being overthrown? Who, who, who do you think it is? Specifically? The Pharisees? You got a lot of... That Pharisees was definitely one of them. When we get specific. If you look at 21, verse 15, Jesus is talking to the chief priests and experts in the law. Your Bible might say scribes. In 21, 23, Jesus is talking to the chief priests and elders. In 21, 45, it's the chief priests and Pharisees. Um a little bit later in chapter 22, it's going to be the Pharisees along with the Herodians. So these are the supporters of King Herod. Why you would support that guy, I have no idea. Um, in chapter 22 verse three, he's talking with the yeah, 22 verse three, 33. He's talking with the Sadducees. So there was no, there's no such thing as simply the religious leaders of the Jews. That's a very broad term. You had all of these different groups. You had the the chief priests. They were the guys that worked in the temple. They did the sacrifices. They did all of the ritual stuff. That was a job. You had the, the scribes. They were the ones who, their job was to transmit God's word properly, to copy it and to make sure that it was taught. They were kind of like the lawyers you would go to. If you were a Pharisee or a Sadducee and you needed a Bible question answered, you'd go to the scribes, the experts in the law, because they spent all day copying God's word. Then you've got the, the elders. Those are the ones who worked in the synagogues, not in the temple, but in the synagogues of the local towns, and they oversaw the local synagogues. Those are all different jobs, and then you've got all these different philosophies, and today we might call them denominations. These are ways of thinking. So you've got the Pharisees. They mostly worked in the synagogue. They were mostly in and around the elders, but not always. But they, they had this frame of thought where they were really conscious about God's law and making sure people followed God's law, and they were kind of with the common people, making sure they obeyed properly. You've got the Sadducees. They're the ones that are like the rich kind of wealthy guys. Typically they worked in the temple with the priests, but not always. They were they were more of, of like what does the first five books of Moses say? That's all they focused on was what does the Torah say? This part here. They didn't regard any of this other stuff as scripture. They only believed in the first five books of Moses. And then you've got the, a couple other groups that we don't even read about in the New Testament that are there, you've got the Essenes. We don't read about them in the New Testament because they had a tendency to go live out in communes out in the wilderness, but they had a big influence on Judaism of the day. Their whole thing was they were waiting for end times. They were very apocalyptic. They were waiting for the messiahs to come, because they, they believed there were two messiahs, by the way, the, the Essenes. They believed there were going to be a a messiah from the tribe of Levi and a messiah from the tribe of Judah. And if you know, if you ever heard the word Dead Sea Scrolls, they found all of those Bible texts. Those were the Essene people. So they've got those guys. You've got the Zealots. The Zealots were these political revolutionaries who were all focused on overthrowing Rome and, and military might. And almost all of these groups, not all of them, but almost all of them are mentioned here in Jesus' final week. And almost all of them confront Jesus and Jesus shuts down almost every single one of these groups. So it's a fair indication that they're pretty well all on the chopping block one way or another. Except for the fact that obviously not all of them, right? Because. In the New Testament, we read about Pharisees and zealots and synagogue leaders all following Jesus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. One of Jesus' apostles was a zealot. And so when we ask the question, which group is being overthrown, we need to understand that it wasn't the groups that were being overthrown. It was the people in those groups who failed to bow the knee to the king. So if that's who's being overthrown and they're going to be replaced by somebody else, who are they being replaced with? It's the church. But when we fast forward to today, our church looks a lot like that, doesn't it? We've got all of these different factions and groups of Christianity, many of whom claim to be the one and only way. Which of, of those groups is the one who really has the keys to the kingdom? Which Is it all of them? Is it just a couple of them? Is it, is it one? Is there one true church? Let's read, the, let's read the very last bit of our parable about the wedding banquet. Starting in verse 11. Verse 11 says, But when the king came in to see the wedding guests, he saw a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? But he had nothing to say. Then the king said to his attendants, Tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This might seem odd, but in those days, everybody had a second clean set of clothes. Even the poorest of the poor had a clean set of clothes that they would take to weddings and events. The cultural expectation was not that this guy was too poor to afford clothes. The expectation of this story when Jesus said it was, he had clean clothes, he chose not to wear them. As a sign of disrespect to the king. It's like if you dug your own old wedding dress out of your closet and wore it to your sister's wedding. Like it was that kind of rude. Like You just didn't do that. And so even though he was a part of the people who were brought in, he was in the wedding, simply being there, simply being invited in name was not enough. Just because he was a part of the group, that didn't mean he was in the wedding banquet if he wasn't wearing the right clothes. What group we're a part of has a lot less to do with our standing with God than what has to do with our heart. Our heart, whether or not we are clothed with Christ, our relationship with God is what makes us right with God, not the particular group we're a part of. I get, I, I get, I get the question like, is this denomination saved or are, are Christian churches saved or are Baptists or Methodists? And my answer is always the same as like, well, I don't know. You'd have to ask those individual people on what their status with God is. I'm sure some of the people that are part of those groups have made Jesus their Lord and some haven't. God doesn't check your denominational card. He doesn't check your church status card. He knows your heart. He doesn't look at your membership records. He looks at whether or not you're wearing the wedding clothes. Whether or not not you're clothed with Christ. Whether you have faith in the King. And that That might be troublesome for some people because we like a really simple one, two, three, this is how I know I'm in the kingdom. I I go to this church, I read this particular translation, I've done these three steps, now I'm right with God. Well, that's not what the heart is, though. Giving your heart to God is not following steps. Giving your heart to God is faith, and faith is sticky, faith is messy, Well, if we want assurance, if we want to know that we're producing fruit, how do we check our hearts? What's the indicator? Like, if I want to give myself a checkup and make sure I'm right with God, if I want to check my heart to make sure I'm wearing the right clothes, to make sure my faith is producing fruit, what's the box that I check? It's not our church membership. It's not our... Verbal testimony, because anybody can say something without believing it, without having faith. It's not, this might even be controversial. It's not even our baptism. Because a lot of people get baptized without having the faith that they need, and that's called just taking a bath. Without that faith that produces fruit, you're just getting wet. So what is the check on our heart? Skip ahead to verse 34. 22, verse 34. Now, when the Pharisees heard he had silenced the Sadducees, they assembled together, and one of them, an expert in religious law, the translation there should say lawyer. That's the better, I think, the the common term. He's a lawyer. He's a (coughs) glasses guy. The expert in religious law asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? What's the thing? What's the indicator? What's the greatest fruit that you can bear through your faith? Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. The religious leadership didn't have that part down. And so everything else was a waste. They were more focused on self and less focused on loving God and loving others. And I think the order of operations is important. Our faith comes first, the kind of faith that says, I'm going to put all my money in this bank, I'm going to store all my treasure in Jesus, and I'm going to confess my sins, turn around, acknowledge that I'm in a state of not producing fruit, and I need to start producing fruit. We put on our wedding clothes, we're clothed with Christ, we're baptized, and we become a new creation. That's the order of operations, but the faith comes first, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us and produces the fruit so that we can become keepers of God's kingdom. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you for the sacrifice that he gave us. We thank you for, God, just everything you do for us. We thank you for our salvation. Please help us to have the kind of faith that bears fruit. We pray all of these things in Jesus' precious name. And the church said, amen. Amen.